Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Love. Love, love is a, a, a tender trap. It's, uh, you, you can let love be your energy. You, you, you can think that only love will set you free. But ultimately, if you're without a state of love and trust, it, it makes you think about that when love comes to town, you've got to catch that train and make sure that you have a whole lot of love. Because people will tell you that you're nobody unless somebody loves you, that you're nobody until somebody cares. And you start wondering, could you be loved? Could anybody, can't anybody find me somebody to love? Where is the love? Maybe someone from Russia with love? No, can't buy me love. I want to know what love is and I want you to show me. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. And suddenly, you're accidentally in love. You found love in a hopeless place and love is in the air and the power of love. Ah, it's a curious thing. Because now you think love is a miracle. She loves me, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you found you somebody to love and that I was made for loving you, baby. Because all of me loves all of you. You know nobody loves you like I love you. I'm in love with the shape of you. You're my one love and your lifting, love is lifting me higher and I'm crazy in love and I will always love you and I'll do anything for love. But I, I won't do that. No, I, I, won't, I won't do that. And, and so now, now that we've found love, what are we going to do with it? And so you wonder, is this love? Is this love? Is this love that I'm feeling? Is there any love in your heart? Love me do, but I'm out of love. <laughs> this love has taken its toll on me. You said goodbye too many times before, and this tainted love you've given, I've given all a boy can give you. <sighs> I'll never fall in love again. She says, do you love me? I tell her only partly. Love is a battlefield, and we are never, ever, ever getting back together. <laughs> and when the promises are already gone, you realize that it must have been love, but it's over now. And you're a love fool, and when it all comes down to it, you miss your love, and that was love, actually. What <laughs> is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. <laughs> Woo. Welcome to Lovember, our month-long look at love and our unpacking of the way that love is represented and communicated in the scriptures. God's great love for us, our great love for God, and our love for one another. We're going to have a lot of fun over these next few weeks, and we're hopefully going to learn a lot more about love and relationships. Now, why are we looking at love and relationships for a month? Well, the fun answer is because you lot just keep getting in relationships. <laughs> and at some point, we've got to speak into that in a way that is helpful and healthy and gives you wise boundaries and maybe some sexual ethics in order to work out what on earth we do when we're in a relationship. I'm sure none of you have felt totally out of your depth, though. Uh, but the real answer is that your life is full of relationships and designed around relationships. And we have a core value here at Encounter that we are all about people. But specifically what we mean in that is we are about relationships with people. We're about sowing into that 
and building into that. In fact, all of Scripture can be summed up in this idea that our lives are built on a relationship with God the Father and relationships with those around us. It is critical for us to understand how to do healthy relationships. Now, we have a problem then as we come to this word love. Because the word love has been diluted and crafted in the 21st century in a way that it it has very little meaning. And it has a lot of nuance, but little meaning. Uh, People talk about how much they love their succulents or their fur babies. And side note, if you ever want to see me triggered, fur babies is a good phrase to use. (laughs) We all, though, know its importance, and we all love love. Except for one of my interns who this week loudly stated that she hated love. I'll let you chat to the interns about that. So we get to Scripture, and we start to ask the question, what is love, right? By the way, my favorite song as a kid, Hadaway, Spotify, when you get home. So good, in a 90s kind of way. Four kinds of love are expressed to us throughout Scripture, and to do this, you need to get into a class in basic rudimentary Greek, which I know is why you came to church. You love it when we learn ancient Greek. It's so applicable to your daily lives. But we've got to get into this. So there's a translation of scripture, and it was available in Jesus' time, and it's called the Septuagint. Everybody try and say Septuagint. You just say it confidently, and everyone nods. Septuagint, or a much easier version is sometimes they just write LXX, which is just 70 in Roman numerals. Um, And so the Septuagint was this translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now, the New Testament is largely written in Greek, so you take this translation of Hebrew into Greek, and suddenly you've got this whole Bible in Greek. I know that seems a bit counterintuitive, but at the time, Greek culture was everywhere, and it was actually common for Jewish people to be better able to read Greek than to read Hebrew. Hmm. So they have this whole thing in Greek, and as they start to unpack it, and they start to interpret the Holy Scriptures into Greek, they unravel it into four different words from love. Now, we have love in our Scriptures for all of these, but as you go back and look at the original Greek, there are four different versions of love. And we're going to look at all of them this month. The first one, what we're going to look at tonight is eros. Everybody say eros. Your Greek's getting so good. That's love in in a kind of sexual attraction, romantic kind of way. The second one is philia. Philia, everybody say philia. Philia. That's love in a brotherly or friendship kind of way. If you think of the city in America, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, right? The third one, storge, everyone. Very good. So it's an affectionate, familial kind of love. And finally, agape. You can learn. I love this. It's love in a sacrificial, altruistic, divine kind of way. Ideally, I wouldn't kick off a series by talking about sex, but we've got a baby dedication next week, and I thought that would be a little bit rough on all the guests. So you got it this week. I want to go to Augustine for a minute. Augustine was one of the great church fathers in in Carthage in North Africa, uh, the Bishop of Hippo. And he's, yeah, I know, right? The Bishop of Hippo. I'd take that title. Um, Augustine was really focused on love and sin. He came from a background uh, where he really dove into sin pretty wholeheartedly for a period of his life. And he came to faith in a powerful way and started to unpack this. And he came to this idea, ultimately, that basically sin is a lack of love at its very core. And there's a bunch of reasons for this, okay? Um, And and then he came up with this idea of basically disordered love, love and disordered love. And it says this, disordered loves mean that we often love less important things more and more important things less than we ought to. 
And this wrong prioritization leads to unhappiness and disorder in our lives. And I'm sure you have all been in scenarios, either in your life or you've seen it in somebody else's, where love has become disordered. We're going to dig into that a bit tonight. And eros in particular is very easily misused. And so it becomes one of the definitions of love that actually needs the strongest boundaries around it. For, to us, for us to have a healthy eros, this kind of love, we need a godly eros. So I want to pitch eros to you as, as, as in its simplest translation, you could call it romantic love. Romantic love. Um, I don't want to go into this too much because I'm just going to cover too much ground tonight. But Eros uh, is, is, named, uh, is uh, the same name as the Greek god of love. You may be familiar with it in mythology. Uh, Eros and Aphrodite, the god and goddess of love. Uh, Eros in particular, depending on the myths you read, very commonly known for cruising around and just causing mischief. Like just, you know, pushing people that aren't meant to fall in love to fall in love. And he did it often by shooting them with an arrow and they would, you know, get pierced and then turn and see somebody they fell in love with. And of course, this, the Latin translation of Eros is Cupid. And that translates to our little chubby bow and arrow shooting friend that we see on Valentine's Day. And so that's where Eros comes out. And of course, the word erotic has its base in Eros. So we're going to dig in tonight into in, a few different areas. I've got to move really fast, so I hope that's all right. So... What we did is this time last year, we did a series called Relationship Goals, and we dug into sex, singleness, and marriage. I'd really encourage you, jump on the podcast and get into those. Um, They're pretty good value, and they'll go deeper into each of those categories. Because tonight, I need to cover all of them in one message, as well as dating. Okay? So, you with me so far? Good. I've got to move fast. So, let's start tonight by talking about eros and singleness. Eros and singleness. Shout-outs to Beyonce. I, this is not the main focus today, singleness, but I want to focus on it because historically, in and out of the church, we are terrible at honouring singleness as a life stage. Absolutely terrible. And the reason is because we treat singleness as a life stage that is a temporary stepping stone until we get to the better life stage. But biblically, it is, if anything, the opposite. Let's dig into this just for a moment. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. You can dig into all of 1 Corinthians 7 and you'll get a lot of goodness about relationships. But 1 Corinthians 7, 8 says this. Paul says this. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for you if you remain as I am. He's saying to them, effectively, don't get married. If you don't have to, don't do it. You're fine. Now, there's context and nuance here. He's, He's probably predominantly talking to widowed people like himself. But he is explicitly saying, if you can deal with not being married, don't do it. Why is that? It's because for some of us, singleness is a calling that God ideally would like us to have. But for some of us, we don't feel up to it. Because culturally, we are under such deep cultural pressures to be in a relationship. Like, again, literally, the last series we did last year was called Relationship Goals, right? That sometimes seems like the goal of our our lives, but it's not. And if you are single right now, I would encourage you to view singleness as a vocation, as a calling. Single people are feeling really uplifted by that, I can tell. But here's the reason I'm saying it. If you can view this moment in your life as a calling, you'll be able to press into where God wants you right now. And you won't need to go, I'll be ready, I'll be like grown up Jesus follower once I'm in a relationship. That's not what God's calling you to. God's just calling you to say, right now, you are where you need to be. 
You do not need a spouse, partner, boyfriend, girlfriend to make you happy, to satisfy you with that. It's really important we do that. So when you do this, you stop telling yourself that you'll be only be fulfilled when you get in a relationship. And that leads me to our first cultural lie. There are four cultural lies I just want to dig into and expose a bit. And the first one is this, that you need to be in a relationship to be fulfilled. Let me be clear. No one ever says this out loud. But every message you've ever got from any kind of advertising has told you that really, yeah, you do need to be in a relationship to be fulfilled. Maybe not today, but if anything, it's just because you're living that lifestyle for you so that down the track you can be in a relationship. Do you know what I mean? This is, this is an underlying message that is a foundation of our, a wider culture and in the church. But you do not. Single people, Paul says, are in many ways more effective for Jesus because your time's not divided. This is a, real, this is a reality of being in a relationship, friends. If you're in one, you know part of your life in that relationship is caring for that other person and spending time with them. And it is beautiful. And when you are single, you can go, all my time belongs to Jesus. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do that. And I still have more time to hang out with my friends too. It's a beautiful thing. And if you can embrace it in that life state, it is so good. So good. Again, I'm hearing the single people really loudly affirm me in all this. It's good. But I understand. And, and I just want to say, I, I get that I'm saying this out of a marriage, like I'm a married man, okay? So there is a, a, a touch of like the, yeah, well, that's very, all very well for you to say. But I just say that wise single people I know affirm the same thing. People that have been through heartbreak and uh, at one stage in their life wanted to be in a relationship have gone, you know what, I am actually effective for Christ in so many ways and I am no less, like obviously, but just let me state it again, no less for being single. It's really important you hear that. Really important. So, what does it look like to have Eros as a single person? Well, denying yourself to follow Jesus is an incredibly powerful example to a culture around you who will not do that. Because Eros still exists for most single people. A sense of romantic attraction still exists. But it's denied for either celibacy or calling. And Pete Scazzaro puts it this way. He says, either we have a vowed celibates, like nuns or priests who are vowed celibates. They take a vow to say, I will always be celibate. Or we have dedicated celibates who are abstinent toward, until marriage. And for those people, we should honour and encourage and uplift them. Eros is honoured in singleness when single people deny themselves in order to follow Jesus by their own choosing. Right, that last part, very important, by their own choosing. It is unhealthy when singleness is seen as a stopping point for a marriage. So I actually don't think the idea of I'm waiting for the one is healthy. I think the idea of I am choosing to devote my entire life to the pursuit of God is much healthier. So it doesn't matter if you're single or in a relationship out of that. There's a, there's a principle I, I want to leave with you in this that goes like this, celibacy and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Celibacy and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. This will help you, honestly, if you can grasp this and say at, at the root of all healthy eros is this, celibacy and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And just let me put it out there. I'm totally fine if you've come here to like find your spouse. That's okay. It happens. Frankly, I'm fine if you go Friday night, I might head out to influencers and, you know, worship. 
It's all right. It's all right. I love influencers. Josh, the pastor there, great friend of ours. But, you know, there's a lot of single people there. There's a lot of single people here. I get it. It's okay. I am actually genuinely fine with that. What I'm not okay with is if we become a place where we have to find our spouse because we're not okay with being single. Is that good? So that's it. I'm going to leave it there with single people. Check out the Single Like Jesus message if you want to hear more. Obviously, in all these topics, I can dig much deeper in all of them. So a bit of grace. Let's keep moving. So looking at dating. Couples are sprouting up like weeds here. Flowers. 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 I mean, remains to be seen, doesn't it? Like flowers here at Encounter. Let's, uh, let's dig into some wisdom around that. I have some thoughts. Pastor has thoughts. Dating is not specifically talked about in Scripture. That makes it hard. We're dealing with a culture that was predominantly in arranged marriages. Lots of times, they're getting married at like 13, 14, 15. There's not much room for dating when you're like, oh, two years from now, mum's going to have organised my marriage anyway, and by then I'll be roughly hitting puberty. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's an unusual dating environment. So dating is not familiar to the New Testament. But it is a cultural norm here in Australia, though it seems to be getting harder and harder to do. In a truly enormous article from The Atlantic that I ploughed through this week, Kate Julian suggests that our addictions to screens and convenience are making dating harder. So Tinder and Bumble and other hookup apps, which you guys probably haven't heard of here in this church and certainly haven't used, but I learned about them on the internet so you would know. Just checking who's deleting apps right now. These are are meant to make dating easier, but have actually made it harder. So they've meant that hot people win more because in an environment where it's predicated on how good you look in a photo, that means that hot people who already come with kind of a competitive advantage, and I've resented them all my life, win more and more. And those of us desperately trying to rely on personality are struggling in a single image-based culture. Like, all jokes aside, you, you can see that, right? A single image actually means the hot get richer and, you know, the single stay single. It's, it, because good photos need to even start a good conversation. And it's meant that it's harder to ask people out on dates in real life because people were just saying, well, why wouldn't I just go on the internet and get a date? Well, I've just told you why in part. But listen to this. This is an article from The Economist two years ago. 17% of Americans, so roughly one in five Americans, between the age of 17 and 29, think that if a man asks a woman out for a drink, that always or usually constitutes harassment. So I'm not talking about repeatedly asking for a drink or doing some creepy leer or anything like that. This is just normal, like, hey, do you want to get a drink? One in five young Americans goes, that's harassment. Now, that will make it hard to get a date if asking someone on a date is constituted as harassment. That's going to be very difficult to get a date. And again, obviously, this is not to minimize genuine harassment. I I hope we can hear that. But this is one of the cultural things we're working into. This is why the community we do here in church is so important, because digital community is separating us even as it looks to make ties that bind. So I don't want to get into why. We don't have time. But all I would say is dating is really hard nowadays, which is why I'm totally fine with you guys coming to find a date. And I actually kind of like the dating culture we currently have here because I think we try hard to hold these two things in tension, and that is marriage and knowledge, okay? Marriage and knowledge, Um, as in we need to get to know these people. I do think, though, you'll be stunned 
to hear I have opinions. There are some problems with Christian dating. Yeah, again, single people are like, yes, I know. It's called me being single right now. Let me dig into a few of the problems I see with Christian dating. The first one is that I see a lot of Christians, regardless of age, going, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking for somebody who can help me in my relationship with God. But what they're really saying is only if they're super hot. And I just think we need to stop lying to ourselves about this. Because what you really want is somebody who follows God with their whole heart. Because I'm telling you, hotness will fade. <laughs> hotness won't last, friends. Holiness will. Because you go further and further and further towards holiness. I, I've been in situations where I, I've had people go, you know, oh, I'm, at, I'm breaking up with um, my, my boyfriend or girlfriend because, yeah, I just don't think they're, they're really in love with Jesus in the same way that I am. And I'm just going garbage. They're actually more in love with Jesus than you are. Like if I had to do a little assessment, I I would be giving them the nod. You just don't want to date them anymore, which is fine, by the way. That's what dating is for. To go, are we compatible? Is this something that works? And if you go, no, it sucks, doesn't it? Like it sucks to be broken up with. It sucks to break up with people. It's way better, though, than being three kids deep and a mortgage and trying to split all that and deal with the repercussions, isn't it? Yeah. Let's, let's be honest. Deal with that stuff now, but don't... You've you got to deal with your own spirit and go, really, in me, am, am, I about, am I about the looks or am I about holiness? Let me get to the second bit of thing I see in, in Christian dating. It is an Abraham Hagar thing. Uh, Quick backstory in Genesis, Abraham and his wife Sarah are promised that they will have descendants as numerous as the grains of sand uh, on the beach and as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they're like, great, we're believing it, but we're getting really, really old. So Abraham's wife is like, why don't you sleep with this slave girl? I can't even tell you how many problems I hear with that sentence, particularly in 2019. But this (laughs) is what happens. And they bear a child, and the child ends up becoming a problem in numerous different ways, in the way they treat him, in, in what he represents, in what he ends up becoming, because they didn't trust in God's promise and timing. And in faith, what I'm really trying to get at here is if you're a young Christian here and you're looking at getting in a relationship, look to get in a relationship with another Christian. Right? Can I just shoot as straight as that? I know for some of you, you might be going, well, yeah, but, 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 I get it. There have been exceptions. The exception proves the rule. All of that. Great. My experience is that maybe one in 50 is an exception. So if you want to be the 2%, good luck. More power to you. But it is very difficult. And if you are in a relationship, again, we're talking about dating here, not marriage. If you're in a marriage, stay married. Witness to your spouse. But if you are dating, strongly consider whether this is your best option. Now, if you go to a psychologist... And you say, I'm looking to get together with somebody, and I'm not sure who I should get together with. They will say, tell me about yourself. What makes you up? What is at the core of your being? What's at the center of your identity? Is it somebody who is like that? I'm saying this to show you that this is not just a date Christian so you're in a holy huddle. This is actually a life principle. You want to be aligned with somebody who is aligned in the way that you're aligned. Otherwise, it's just going to be really, really difficult. Really difficult. So the third thing that I see Christians doing as they date is they're assuming that when they date, marriage is the goal for that relationship. Marriage is ultimately the goal of healthy Christian dating, sure. But let me, let me just give a couple of do's and don'ts here. 
The first do, yep, do date Christians. That way you're on the same page. But the first don't is don't date people in order to marry them. And the second don't, don't date people you wouldn't marry. So just hold those two things in tension. When you're looking for somebody to date, yes, make sure they have the qualities that you go, I could imagine that I could see a spouse in this person. Don't, however, assume that it has to go that way. Take your time. Walk this out. Get to know one another. It's crazy in our current culture just to go, yeah, spouse, boom, let's go. If somebody comes up to you and says, I was praying and, and God said we should get married, I just go, nah. But honestly, <laughs> honestly, I know as a pastor I should probably tell you to go, oh, wow, like that's... I want to listen to the word of the Lord on your heart, or at least I should go away and pray about it. If somebody's coming at you like that, I like time out. Real, strong time out. I'm getting some weird vibes from that person. I would be asking them, has anybody else confirmed this with you? Or would you like me to confirm this, for example? Just, I'm just saying, sometimes Christian dating gets weird. We all know that. But if you are dating as a believer, do try and date another believer. It'll make your life a million times easier. It'll make your faith stronger. Not just you won't just be getting by. It'll make it stronger. Iron sharpening iron. Don't date people to marry them. Don't date people you'd never marry, obviously. That's the hotness over holiness thing again, because that's why you're dating people you'd never marry. And then let the relationship play out. Like, actually have a relationship. And can I tell you, when we do pre-marriage counselling, Jen and I, the first thing we do is we sit down with them and go, hey, if as we go through this, this is not working, break up. And people are like, ah, what? Aren't you meant to be giving us marriage counseling? I'm like, yes, I am. Now, if you're engaged, I do not want you to break up, obviously. You've obviously got engaged for a reason. You're in love with one another. You're moving somewhere with it. But I would rather you deal with the embarrassment and a little bit of financial loss now than the absolute crushing thing to happen down the line when you realise, actually, I never wanted to get married to this person and I, was just, I just felt stuck, I felt trapped and afraid. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying don't get married. I'm saying be gutsy enough to ask yourself that question, honestly. Because once you're married, I'm going to pitch to you, it's too late at that point. We'll get to that in a minute. Quick little challenge. Quick little challenge to the word partner. I know this is a word we love to use right now. It's in just sort of popular understanding. I think it's a bit of a cop-out. I do, and I'd, I'd encourage you to try and avoid using it. I do understand that if you're like in your 30s and 40s and you're dating someone, it, it feels weird to say, this is my girlfriend, this is my boyfriend. I do get that. But often I feel like the word partner has largely been used to go, this is the person who tells me that our commitment to each other shouldn't need to be defined by paper, but also refuses to commit themselves enough to me to write it on paper. Just want to throw that out there. That one's for free. The rest, well, you're probably already paying for it now. It's, listen, this is, it's FOBO, fear of a better offer happening live in your relationships, okay? That's what it is. So what does the Bible say about dating? Because you're well and truly over my advice at this point. Scripture reminds us that our goals in relationships are not to be fulfilled by other people but to be an example of Christ-likeness for them. This is what Colossians says. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Why did I choose that passage? Because it has nothing to do with the relationship you're in. 
except your relationship with God. That's what you continue in. So that leads me to cultural lie number two, which is that you need to be in a relationship with somebody who fulfills you. Yes, in our individualistic culture, that is how we feel about relationships. But that's not how God feels about relationships. The truth is you need to grow up into Christ. And part of the struggle with our Christian dating culture is our Christian adulting culture. We need to grow up into Christ. We need to take personal responsibility for our spirits and our actions. So just as you have received Jesus' encounter, continue to live in him. Now, at the same time as all this, dating is, to some degree, about assessment. You need to be praying and thinking and discerning about whether this person is the same place spiritually as you and whether you're romantically attracted to them, whether that eros love is really there. Do you know how to do that? You talk to them about it. Like, what if you start dating and you're like, yeah, I like this person, and you get three dates in and you're like, wow, we are really a long way apart, but we've talked it through and we know it. That's actually awesome. Then you can go, you know what? We're going to break up and it kind of sucks, but at the same time, three dates. Oh, well, that's all right. Might have got a steak dinner out of it. You never know. (laughs) Eros is honoured in dating when it is put underneath the desire to be more like Christ. Imagine a relationship where the two of you are not only attracted to one another, but actually inspired to become more like Jesus because of the example of one another. Imagine that. And Eros becomes unhealthy when our romantic attraction sucks up all the energy from everything else in our lives. You know what that looks like. You've all had friends who have been in that relationship before. It becomes more about our wish fulfillment than our relationship with Jesus. That's just several suitcases worth of info about dating. I only get to do this once a year. So, you know, you get a lot of it all at once. Let's move on to marriage, eros and marriage. Marriage, friends, is not the end goal for Christians. Jesus is. Marriage is not what will fulfill you. Jesus is. Marriage might be the hardest thing you do if you are trying to do it like Christ is calling you to do. That's my inspiration for you towards marriage this evening. But marriage is also one of the clearest pictures we are given to Jesus' relationship with the church. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. And then he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I choose this passage because most of the stuff I'm talking about tonight, I could pick four or five passages from all over the place, right? It's, it's pretty clear biblical teaching. I picked this passage not because I think husbands, you should wash your wives. I think that would be weird unless you really ask permission. And even then, a little weird. (laughs) I do this to point out that our jobs in a marriage are to present one another as, as like the perfect bride of Christ. Our aim is to lay our lives down for one another. Something that's sometimes called mutual submission. The point of that passage is less to talk about husbands and wives and more to talk about Christ and his church. Now, marriage has changed dramatically in the last 50 years, but we need to continue to champion it as the church, his wife. It's not a social contract. It's a divine covenant. 
It's something far more powerful than a piece of paper. It's not just a legal proceeding. It's a holy moment of worship as the bridegroom and the bride are united in Christ. I loved it at Jared and Lisa's wedding recently. You know, our, our beautiful chair of elders and MVP of volunteers. She loves that. At, when, at their wedding, it was a holy moment. It was a holy moment as people cried out in song, as we prayed over them, as people prophesied over them, spoke life into them. And can I encourage you, when you get married, don't shrink back from the holy stuff. Don't shrink back from that. Don't shrink back from the parts that say, this belongs to God now and forever. That is a testimony to people around you. It is really powerful. It it is beautiful. Eros is honored in marriage when wives and husbands fight for it. Because in a dating relationship, you don't have to fight for it as much. Romance, that's there. Like, if romance isn't there in your dating relationship at all, you need to consider it. Because you should be getting the butterflies, you know? You should be feeling like, I'm really excited by this new thing that's beginning. But in marriage, you've got to fight for that because familiarity breeds contempt. And when you're married to somebody for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you become familiar with them and you have to continually teach yourself to fall in love with this person. And it becomes a real challenge. But you should fight for the butterflies because romance is beautiful. It's spontaneous. It's intentional. It involves intimate dinners. It involves kid-free nights, although in marriage... You're also inviting your children as part of the family to witness covenant love as you, as you love one another. Great marriages also features great sex, right? Like, God wants... <laughs> People nervously cheering for that one. <laughs> Paul champions this. Paul champions marital sex. He says this, don't abstain from sex unless you're praying like just for a bit of time, but then go back and have more sex if you're in a marriage. It's in 1 Corinthians. Look it up. This is in the Bible. The Bible's good news. <laughs> if there is a sex recession happening in the Western world, and I'll get into that in a minute, then why doesn't the church be a place where in our marriages we're boosting the numbers for how many times people are having sex every week? That's what great marriages look like. We love each other, we're enjoying each other, and we're having great sex. And if that needs to be witnessed to and start in my own marriage, so be it. (laughs) Eros is unhealthy in marriages when Eros becomes the end goal. When we make romance the end goal. A million Matthew McConaughey movies before the McConaughey's have been created around this. Every bad Disney movie you've cringed at has been created around this idea that romance is the end goal. Because when Eros is the end goal, if we aren't quote-unquote happy in our marriage, then our marriage isn't fulfilling us. I'm not talking about abuse or infidelity here. I'm talking about just that feeling. I don't feel happy in my marriage. There will be times, friends, when you don't feel happy in your marriage. Yet God has called you to lay down your life for your spouse. It's powerful. It's powerful. So cultural lie number three is this, that your marriage is about you and your spouse and the feelings you get from one another. It isn't. Marriages are not designed to make you happy. That's not meant to be a bit. They're designed to teach you what it means to love like Jesus did. 
to lay down your lives in sacrificial love for one another. They should be places that serve as a foretaste of the kingdom of God and Christ's relationship with his church. And when you see it, it is such a powerful witness. Now, I'm going to do something and just embarrass somebody in a positive way. Usually, you know, I'm more embarrassing people in a different way. But I, I really want to call somebody out here because when I, I see Mark and Ali Schultz's relationship and their marriage, I see covenant love. I see it. I, I look at that and I go, it inspires me to love my wife better. It inspires me to love Jesus more. And so when you see that, it becomes a witness to the wider world to go, there's something going on in this marriage that is out of the ordinary. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It's intentional. It's sacrificial. That is eros used at its most beautiful as part of a greater whole. And when we do that, it does make us happy. Right? Like It's not like we don't have happiness. It's just that's not the point of our marriage. We shouldn't be asking the question, am I happy in this marriage? We should be asking, am I loving my spouse like Christ loves the church? All right. Let's get into sex, figuratively. As we, as we begin to talk about sex, I, I, I really do want to make this clear. Serious moment for a second. This is not about shame, okay? Because many of us have different sexual histories that we feel ashamed of or we wish we could bury or we don't even know how to process. We're a future-focused church here at Encounter. What that means is we're not here to condemn you for your past, but hopefully guide you into your future. What you've done in your past, you really, if you need to wrestle with that, if you want to chat to somebody about that, we're here for it but we in no way are here to condemn anyone for anything that has happened in their past. What we are praying and believing for is the best possible future in Christ Jesus. So as we get to this idea of sex, again, I'm going to go past this quickly. Let me jump into what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. This is heavy but powerful. Flee sexual immorality. So any kind of it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. I've got to get through this really quick, because you've all been really patient. But we are in what sociologists are calling a sex recession. In the West, people were having less and less sex. This is what I was alluding to before. If you look through the Scandinavian countries, if you look in England, uh, America, Australia, all the West, uh, from 2001 to 2012, Australians in relationships went from having sex roughly 1.8 times a week down to 1.4. And I promise you, those numbers will have dipped further and not risen back up. From the independent, as they describe how people no longer need to leave the house to find entertainment, uh, the person writes, now everyone can live what feels like an entertaining life without taking the risk of leaving the house thanks to nearly limitless television and video games. This is one of the reasons we're in a sex recession. And of course, porn. The soul-destroying, objectifying nightmare that continues statistically to drive violence against women, decrease sex drive in men, and isolation rather than couplehood. Don't be fooled. I talk more about that in the Sex God message. Have a listen. So as our sexual moral, morals culturally are looser than ever before, our, our desire to have sex is dropping. And the large reason is we're more individualistic than ever before. 
There's a movie called Her. Who's seen Her? Anybody? Joaquin Phoenix? It's oh, only a few of you, but such a good movie. And, and it's set in the distant future where uh, artificial intelligence is really powerful and people have their own individual, basically, helper. So think Google Home, but, you know, sentient, basically. And in her, Joaquin Phoenix's character is, begins a relationship with his AI, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, which I guess makes it easier. And <laughs> as he gets into this relationship, it, it's going deeper and deeper, and they, they actually kind of have sex in a way together. And then they get to this point where she mentions something about another person, and he goes, hang on. And it just hits him. Are you, are you talking to other people right now? She's like, well, yeah, like, end of the day, I'm a company AI. He's like, oh. How many other people? She says, oh, about 6,000. And, and suddenly what's become this personal wish fulfillment of I've got an artificial intelligence who changes and transforms themselves so that they suit me. It's not mutual. They just have to suit me. And they do it because that's what they do. Artificial intelligence, sentience, they work it out. But suddenly, oh, this is not exclusive to me either. Our individualism is killing our sex lives. Uh, porn and Netflix are a pretty, pretty big part of this. Matt Chandler says this, outside of marriage, sex becomes about self-gratification and fulfilling personal desires. And sex is just about the most vulnerable thing you can do with a person as well. This is why sex outside of marriage is really clearly spoken against in the Bible. Now, I suspect you all know that, but whether you want to live that is another story. And I do get that. I came from a non-Christian background. I didn't find faith till I was 19. This was an unfamiliar idea to me. But God has the best possible designs for your sex life. Can, can I just tell you, apologies if this offends people, but like, the orgasm is not a design flaw, right? Like God didn't have to include that. It, there's nothing necessarily biologically useful about it. it, it from an evolutionary perspective, what does it do? Nothing. From a personal enjoyment standpoint, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not a design flaw, and it's something that we need to take into consideration when we ask ourselves, does God really have my best sex life in interest? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. It's just that he doesn't want you to destroy your soul by giving it away. Just think about the things that happen when sex goes wrong. We think of sex slavery. We think of the sex trade, sex abuse, sexual abuse, right? Everything that you can put a negative word under in front of sex is every worst headline you've ever read in your life. Because sex, at its, at its best, is so vulnerable and beautiful and wonderful, and at its worst, is so selfish and so evil and so give me, give me, give me. And so now culturally we're reaching a point where we won't even do that because we can stay at home and feel like we get the same feelings if you catch my drift. I know, I've said everything else. Why didn't I just say that? But you know, let's leave something out there. Now that's not to say, by the way, that as soon as you get married, sex becomes healthy. You can have unhealthy sex in marriage. It can be pragmatic can be resentful, it can be pushed but not quite forced, right? And of course, it can be just pure obligation, but none of that is God's design for sex. That is unhealthy eros, unhealthy romance, unhealthy sexual attraction. Good sex gives God glory and builds up both partners. Healthy eros in sex is when it is done inside the covenant of marriage, 
in a way that is aimed at edifying, that means building up and serving the other spouse. Read between the lines there, people. And in ways that are glorifying to God, and it's meant to be fun. And it's meant to be, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we kind of need to laugh at each other a bit more when we're having sex. And you can't do that if you're having a one-night stand. Like, how deeply offensive would that be? But in the context of marriage, like, you're laughing together. It's actually beautiful. And it's ridiculous, and it's a bit silly, and, you know, don't do it every time, maybe, you know? (laughs) Think about why you're laughing. But it's a good, it's a beautiful, it's a fun part of marriage. It's not a design flaw. When it's inside the covenant of marriage, sex can be like heaven. And when we try and force it to fit our desires, it can be like hell. So how do we know if our eros, our romantic love, is healthy? How do we know it's healthy? We know it if when, as we display it or wrestle with it, our lives begin to look more like Jesus. Our eros is largely unhealthy when it becomes about self-gratification. You think of unhealthy romance. Forget sex for a moment. You think of unhealthy romance, unhealthy relationships, when they're about sex, when they're about sex, yes, but when they're about self-gratification, when they're about the person, the other person going, you're my world, like, apart from, you know, dry reaching, it's, it's really at its worst, isn't it? When you go, no, 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 you're my world, because what happens if you break up? Honestly, guys. And fighting unhealthy eros is one of the great battles for the Christian in the 21st century, because the lie is that we need sex to be satisfied, And it's one that we're told and sold financially constantly. That's why there's sex appeal all over your billboards and YouTube ads. Eros, used outside God's covenant, is toxic, but used within God's covenant of marriage in order to bless and serve our spouse. Eros, as sacrificial love, is beautiful and constructive and grows you in your faith and your spouse in their faith. All this through a little bit of romance. Bit of dancing, a nice dinner. Let's look at, talk about Jesus and Eros to finish. Because Jesus was single. And being Jewish, he probably spent half of his adult life explaining to his mother why she can't marry him off. Now, we don't hear the word Eros in the New Testament. So in a sense, it's unclear what this means for Jesus. But we do hear about it in the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever not read the Song of Songs, Go have a read of it and then drink a cold glass of water. Because it's basically ancient erotic poetry, erotic literature. It's pretty explicit in a lot of ways. And in it, we see the bridegroom describe in intimate detail his love and adoration and affection for his bride. And yes, I mean intimate. He is explicit. He is detailed. And he adores her wholeheartedly not as an object for sex, but as the object of his affections. And in that, there's a sense of waiting where it says, do not stir this up before it's appointed time. It is so beautiful. And it's so restrained because as the lover in Song of Songs is describing his his, his beloved, you know that he's holding himself back, right? Like it is very, very clear how into her he is and vice versa. But there is a restraint that actually adds devotion, actually adds honor, that adds godliness. And as we, as we see this, Eros is fulfilled in this picture for Solomon, who is the lover in this, and for his bride, and in Jesus' full affection for his church. 
Jesus is romancing his church. You and I are the object of his affection as the church. Of course, this isn't sexual affection, but we, the church, as the bride of Christ, are the end goal of Jesus' eros romancing of us. That's what it is. That's how much God loves you. He sent his son down here to earth to woo you, to invite you back to himself. If you ever hear people say, I don't like Christians, but I like Jesus, one of the reasons is we, a, we don't do a great job impersonating Jesus, but because Jesus is so eminently likable. He comes down and he loves people. He pours out affection on them. He invites them from brokenness into wholeness, from death into life. He does it by sitting with them and journeying along them. He takes all these four concepts of love and bears them up in one. And then in the ultimate act of sacrificial love for his bride, he dies on the cross for you and for me. Jesus loves you way more than any of us can ever love our spouses, present or future. And he woos us and loves us into the marriage that we were made for. The intimate and beautiful relationship we have with Jesus that connects us to God the Father. When we follow Jesus, we, the church, become the bride of Christ. But it's Jesus that makes us wear white on our wedding day. Pure, holy, spotless. You all know that's why brides wear white, right? It's a symbol of purity, beauty. And it doesn't matter what a bride's life has been like on her wedding day. That's all you see. A symbol of purity and beauty and goodness. But what we're meant to see as Christians as well is a picture of the church as we come down towards Christ, our bridegroom. And we know our history. We know the baggage we're dragging along behind us. And even worse, we know that he knows. He doesn't see that. He sees a bride dressed all in white. And what's more, he bought us the dress. That's the love of Christ for us. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.